Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Ukraine takes back several cities as the country's president asks Australia for more help. What does he warn might happen? Western officials say President Putin is misinformed about the reality of the war in Ukraine, and a British agent says Russian soldiers are refusing to carry out orders. A group of Russian programmers respond to the government's ban of Instagram by releasing an alternative app. The app is in black and white, and it asks users to post sad photos. The World Health Organization is working on a strategy to end the COVID emergency this year. The organization's director general said the world is now at a pivotal and dangerous moment in the fight against the virus. Ukraine has recaptured several cities, but the fighting isn't over. Italy's prime minister says Russian leader Vladimir Putin told him it isn't the right time for a ceasefire yet. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. Ukrainian forces have retaken the town of Sloboda, seen in this video posted to social media. It's vital to Ukrainian efforts to break the Russian encirclement of Chernihiv. Ukraine also recaptured Trostyanets in the northeast, or what's left of it. Russian forces controlled it for a month. A local saleswoman says she and some small children spent 30 days in the basement hiding from shelling. The children are shaking. They ask, when will we go to kindergarten? When will we go to school? They don't understand what has happened. Over the past week, Ukrainian forces have recaptured towns and villages on the outskirts of Kyiv, broken the siege of the eastern city of Sumy, and pushed back Russian forces in the southwest. Meanwhile, in the country of Georgia, the leader of breakaway region, South Ossetia, says they will soon take legal steps to join Russia, calling it their historical homeland. Moscow recognized the territory as independent after fighting a war with Georgia in 2008. Meanwhile, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke to Australian lawmakers Thursday. He asked for more help to fight Russia, including armored vehicles and tougher sanctions. If we don't stop Russia now, if we don't hold Russia accountable, then some other countries of the world who are looking forward to the similar war against their neighbors will decide that such things are possible for them as well. In the United States, President Biden Wednesday announced another $500 million in direct aid to Ukraine. Russia says it's carrying out a special operation to disarm Ukraine and oust dangerous nationalists. Western countries call it a pretext to invade. Italy's prime minister says Russian leader Vladimir Putin told him conditions are not yet in place for a ceasefire in Ukraine. Talks are set to resume Friday by video. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The Ukrainian army is capturing Russian military hardware, and servicemen say they plan to repair the weaponry for use against Russian forces. The Ukrainian army is showing off what they say is captured Russian military hardware, including tanks, a motorized anti-aircraft launcher, and multi-purpose armored track vehicles. Today, uh, our warriors uh, uh, try to repair, uh, repair this machine because uh, in future we have a hope that this war machine can be useful for Ukrainian army. Some of the weaponry was apparently abandoned on the road near Kharkiv, one of the hardest-hit cities in Ukraine. 
Other weapons were found in a village east of Kyiv after Ukrainian troops regained control of the region. Many of the captured tanks were just sitting there without fuel. You can see that the guy was shot into his temple. He was simply shot for nothing. He had no connections with the army, had no connections with the military, but for some reason Russian occupants did not like him. Ukrainian troops are fighting close to major cities with an advantage of supplies. While Russia continues to send military forces into Ukraine, where there is a risk of running out of ammunition and fuel. Analysts say the Ukrainian army has seized at least 117 tanks, compared with some 70 lost to Russia. But it's unclear how many of these tanks will be put into further service. President Biden is set to announce the release of 1 million barrels of oil a day for the next six months from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The White House says it will help bring down gasoline prices. Biden's aim is to try to bring down gasoline prices that have soared in recent months, particularly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The White House also says the Defense Production Act will be authorized to support the production and processing of minerals and materials used for large-capacity batteries such as lithium, nickel, cobalt, graphite, and manganese. The White House describes the scale of the release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve as unprecedented. It says the Department of Energy will use the revenue from the release to restock the SPR in future years. The Kremlin expressed regret and concern over U.S. officials' reports that the Russian president is being misinformed by advisors about his military's performance in Ukraine. The White House and European officials said Putin's advisors were too scared to tell him how poorly the war in Ukraine is going and how damaging Western sanctions have been. Russia's invasion of its neighbor has encountered stiff resistance from Ukrainian forces who have recaptured territory, even as civilians are trapped in besieged cities. We have information that Putin felt misled by the Russian military, which has resulted in persistent tension between Putin and his military leadership. We believe that Putin is being misinformed by his advisors about how badly the Russian military is performing and how the Russian economy is being crippled by sanctions because his senior advisors are too afraid to tell him the truth. The Kremlin made no immediate response, and the Russian embassy in Washington did not immediately reply to a request for comment. Washington's decision to share its intelligence more publicly reflects a strategy it has pursued since before the war began. One senior European diplomat said the U.S. assessment was in line with European thinking, that Putin thought things were going better than they were. That diplomat also said there were no indications for now that the situation could foster a revolt among the Russian military, but he called the situation unpredictable. Military analysts say Russia has reframed its war goals in Ukraine in a way that may make it easier for Putin to claim a face-saving victory, despite a military campaign that has suffered humiliating setbacks. Russian President Vladimir Putin has misjudged the situation in Ukraine. That's according to Jeremy Fleming, who is head of British spy agency GCHQ. Fleming made the remarks during a visit to Canberra, where he also said that Russian forces are refusing to carry out orders. We've seen Russian soldiers, short of weapons and morale, refusing to carry out orders, sabotaging their own equipment, and even accidentally shooting down their own aircraft. And even though we believe Putin's advisers are afraid to tell him the truth, 
What's going on and the extent of these misjudgments must be crystal clear to the regime. Fleming said President Putin has massively misjudged the capabilities of Russia's armed forces and the resistance of the Ukrainian people. He also said Putin underestimated the resolve of the West, which has punished Moscow with sanctions. On the role of China, Fleming said there are risks for both Russia and China if the two countries align too closely on the Ukraine conflict. Prime Minister Boris Johnson last week directly confronted Chinese leader Xi Jinping over Beijing's stance on the conflict. The British spy agency gathers communications from around the world to identify threats to Britain and has a close relationship with the U.S. National Security Agency. Air-to-air refueling operations are demanding enough, but it's even riskier when it happens a few minutes away from the Ukrainian border. The French refueling aircraft Phoenix took off from its base in southern France for a routine operation as part of France's commitment to NATO. On the menu, tons of fuel to feed the fighter jets patrolling the skies on the eastern border of the NATO alliance. On the right of the Phoenix, a French plane carefully approaches a basket that will deliver 2.5 tons of fuel. In-air refueling allows jets to stay in flight for long periods of time without having to land to fill up, and different types of planes require different ways of delivering fuel. The mission was taking place as part of NATO's enhanced air policing to secure the skies over Baltic allies. Joining us now is U.S. Representative Pat Fallon of Texas. He details his recent trip to Ukraine and contrasts the crisis at the southern border with Ukrainian refugees being allowed into the U.S. Yes, we went to Poland, Moldova, Romania, and we spent a brief amount of time in Ukraine on the Romanian-Ukrainian border. And it was very eye-opening. First of all, you have a refugee crisis. You have a humanitarian catastrophe really on our hands or potential catastrophe where you have 10 million million folks that are um, really uh, on the move. Six million are displaced in Ukraine, and then four million have left the country. Poland has absorbed, Kevin, two million people in about a month's time, and there are no major refugee camps because the Polish people have opened up their homes to the Ukrainian refugees. So has Moldova, a country of only 2.7 million. They've absorbed 15% of their population, 400,000 Ukrainian refugees. And uh, Romania has done that as well. Our troops on the ground, we visited uh, one of our airborne divisions and the commander there, and they they know what they're there for. They know what their mission is. They're the best military in the world, so that was heartwarming. Well, and, and speaking of your time on the ground there, can you tell us more about your interaction with the refugee mother and her teenage daughters? Yes, the, we, there was a processing center where some, sometimes the refugees stay for a few days before uh, uh, they, are get, they get paired with a Polish family. And it was incredibly touching. Mom's probably in her 40s. She had a 17 and 13-year-old daughter, daughters rather. And the 17-year-old spoke pretty good English. And we are just visiting with her and said, are you in communication with your father? And she said yes, and we talked to him every day, and and we asked how he's doing. And he's on the front lines. They don't know if he's going to survive until tomorrow. And that just, you know, brought her to tears. And then we gave them uh, just something a little, you know, we gave them some money to to help them out just personally, out of pocket, because you're you're compelled to help. President Biden has said that he plans to take 100,000 Ukrainian refugees into the United States. You said this is not enough. Do you think if the United States takes more, we will still be able to reunite them with their families in the end? 
Yes, because there's a big difference between what's happening on our southern border with Mexico and the crisis in the Ukraine. These are war refugees. These are people that have a very um, positive outlook and they're very favorable to the United States and they have every intention of returning home. Now, as we know, not everybody goes home, but they are uh, only willing to come here if they come here legally. And if we offer up our hearts to a few hundred thousand more, I think that it would be, it would, we'd, we would show leadership in the world. And it, it is a humanitarian crisis due to no fault of their own. They're war refugees, not economic migrants. And for those Ukrainians that stay, quite frankly, I think they would become great Americans because they are yearning for liberty and justice and freedom. They're highly educated as well for the most part. A group of programmers in Russia is planning to launch an alternative version of Instagram after the Russian government banned the app. They're calling it Sadgram, and it asks users to post sad pictures. Here are the details. A black and white melancholy alternative to Instagram may launch in Russia this week. Its creators say the app is to express sadness at the loss of popular services such as Instagram in Russia. They call it Grustonogram, or Sadgram in English. In the beginning, it was just a joke, like, let's do this for fun. It could be funny. But the joke obviously got out of control. And now everybody knows about our joke, or almost everybody. The Russian government shut down access to Instagram on March 14th and accused its parent company, Meta, of extremist activities. This affects around 80 million users in Russia. The creator of Grustonogram says his team drew the concept in a day or two and made the design in four to five days. It was a seriously good thing that we could show to others so that they could at least appreciate our prank itself first, and secondly, the quality of our prank. The creator says he doesn't believe the government will shut them down. I don't think they will shut us down. I think on the contrary, the communications ministry and the state in general should fully support projects like ours and give them full freedom, because if they come and shut us down, then obviously any quality products are impossible in Russia. Instead of Instagram's heart-shaped like button, Grustonogram offers a broken heart and the option to be sad. A message on the platform's website reads, post sad pictures of yourself, show this to your sad friends, be sad together. So are people in Russia buying the idea? In regards to Grustonogram, the idea is interesting, but most likely I won't be using it. There's enough sadness, that's probably why. The creators expect to release the app on the Android store by the end of the week and later on the App Store. The World Health Organization has unveiled an updated plan for COVID-19. It says that if the plan is implemented rapidly and consistently this year, it will allow the world to end the emergency phase of the pandemic. It's the third plan from the WHO on COVID-19 and includes three scenarios on how the virus might play out over the next 12 months. A base case, best case, and a worst case. Some of its main goals include reducing infections and diagnosing and treating the virus effectively to reduce deaths. The organization's director general said the world now stands at a pivotal and dangerous moment in the fight against COVID-19, adding it's impossible to predict exactly how the virus will evolve. He says they know that new variants will arise and even intensify, though he points out that they can look to the future with a sense of hope and can end the pandemic emergency through their actions. The WHO director outlined the most likely scenario. 
based on what we know now, the most likely scenario is that the virus continues to evolve. But the severity of disease it causes reduces over time as immunity increases due to vaccination and infection. Periodic spikes in cases and deaths may occur as immunity wanes, uh, which may require periodic boosting for vulnerable populations. In the base case and planning scenario, the virus evolves, but outbreaks are less severe due to immunity. There might be periodic spikes, booster shots might be needed for people at high risk, and the virus would likely fall into a seasonal pattern with peaks in the colder months like the flu. The best case scenario sees future variants being significantly less severe with protection from severe disease being maintained without needing boosters or changes to the vaccines. Their worst case scenario sees a highly contagious and very dangerous variant arise, one that vaccines are not effective against. Along that possibility, immunity against severe disease and death drops rapidly, especially in the most vulnerable groups. This scenario would require major changes to vaccines and more boosters for at-risk people. What's more, the WHO is calling on countries to increase their virus surveillance capabilities. That will allow for early warning signs ahead of big changes in the virus. And the organization wants better detection of long COVID-19. Itching to go on a cruise but nervous about COVID? Here's some good news from the CDC. It just dropped its risk assessment of cruise travel. For more than two years now, health officials have been warning people not to go on a cruise. But considering where we are in the pandemic right now, and since COVID-19 cases on cruise ships have been dropping over the past several weeks, the CDC decided to give cruises the green light. Of course, this doesn't mean there's no risk. The CDC says you're better off vaccinated, and you should research how each cruise line handles public health measures. One person is dead and two others were rescued after a U.S. Navy aircraft crashed in Virginia waters. The crash took place during routine exercises. The two survivors do not have life-threatening injuries. The Coast Guard told Fox News that it received a call to assist around 7.30 p.m. Wednesday. The time of the crash remains unclear. A spokesperson for the Coast Guard told the news outlet that it dispatched a motor lifeboat and a helicopter to the scene. According to WAVY in Virginia, two people were found injured on the top of the wreckage. They sustained broken legs. The local Coast Guard told WRIC-TV the third person was last seen strapped in for flight and went down with the aircraft. The identity of the crew member killed in the incident will be released once their next of kin have been notified. The Navy says the incident is under investigation. The spokesperson for Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin said his office is monitoring the situation. Kentucky lawmakers have approved a new law banning most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. It also restricts access to medication abortion and makes it more difficult for a minor to get one. The House passed the bill Tuesday, 74 to 19. The Senate also voted Tuesday, 29 to zero. The legislation now heads to Governor Andy Bashir's desk. He has not committed to supporting the bill. But if he vetoed it, the legislature would likely override him. Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign and the Democratic National Committee are in hot water after federal officials found they violated rules on reporting expenditures. 
The Federal Election Commission has fined the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee, or DNC, for not accurately describing payments made to the Perkins Coie law firm. Under federal law, political campaigns must report the name and addresses of each person they pay more than $200 per year and define the purpose of the payment. Federal officials ruled that the DNC paid more than $1 million to Perkins Coie. The law firm then funneled the money to Fusion GPS for opposition research on the Steele dossier, which became the catalyst for the Russia hoax. Clinton's campaign reported that the money was used for legal services. Some cities and states across the nation have been taking a softer stance on crime over the past few years. New York City's mayor says that's partially what made the city's subway system an unlawful place. NTD's Arian Pastar has more from Manhattan. Riding the subway can cost you a lot of money, especially in an expensive city like New York. And poor people are affected the most, so some decide to not pay and jump the turnstile instead. And the city stopped prosecuting fare evasion in order to create a more equitable environment. But the mayor says there are better ways to do that. There's a way to get on the subway system if you don't have enough money to pay your fare. We've created an environment in our subway system where rules don't matter. Just in the past week, a teenage girl was repeatedly punched in the face in an unprovoked attack. A woman was sexually assaulted and a man was robbed and beaten, all in the subway system. Back in the 80s, subway crime in New York City was a big problem as well. The mayor says it was fixed once and it can be fixed again by going after fare evaders. People who commit crimes, they don't pay their fare. <laughs> they hop to turnstile to commit a crime. And so uh, we knew that you had to zero in on those that came into the system to commit a crime. He added that prosecuting a small crime like fare evasion is one of the first steps to stopping bigger and more violent crimes. The mayor isn't the only one getting tough on crime. State Democrats in New York, New Jersey and New Mexico are currently advocating for tough on crime bills. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. The Buffalo Bills are getting a new $1.4 billion stadium. $850 million of that will be paid with taxpayer money. That's the highest amount of taxpayer dollars ever spent on a stadium in the U.S. Some are questioning the hefty public contribution, especially since the governor's husband might profit from the new site. Governor Kathy Hochul's husband is the senior vice president and general counsel of a firm called Delaware North. The firm delivers food and drinks for the Buffalo Bills Stadium and has been doing so for 30 years. According to the New York Post, a government watchdog group questioned how Hochul avoided a conflict in approving the Bills Stadium deal, quote, when her husband's firm, Delaware North, is one of the big winners. A spokeswoman for the governor told the New York Post that Governor Hochul is committed to the strictest ethical standards and restoring trust in government. The firm's contract will expire at the end of the 2022 season. After that, the team will put out the contract for a competitive bid. We reached out to the governor's office, but did not hear back before broadcast. It's been a scary month for many people around the country with a record number of tornadoes touching down. Just in the month of March, there have been at least 214 tornadoes, 
the most on record since 1950. The Storm Prediction Center says the previous record for March was set just last year with 191 tornadoes. Usually, there are only about 80. California Governor Gavin Newsom has a new plan to fight fire with fire. On Wednesday, the governor unveiled a $1.2 billion proposal intended to prevent major wildfires. The plan calls for doing targeted, controlled burns in more than 400,000 acres to lessen the overall risk. California will work with federal and tribal authorities on the plan to better protect communities and the state's natural resources as well. The proposal includes funds for a training center to instruct firefighters statewide on how to use controlled or prescribed fires effectively. California Governor Gavin Newsom has reversed parole board recommendation to release Manson follower Leslie Van Houten from prison. 72-year-old Van Houten was 19 when she joined the murderous Charles Manson family. She was convicted for her role in the stabbing murders of supermarket executive Leno LaBianca and his wife Rosemary in 1969. Van Houten has spent 52 years in prison. California's parole board denied her release 16 times before recommending her release in 2016. Van Houten's parole recommendations have now been reversed five times, twice by former Governor Jerry Brown and three times by Newsom. Newsom said in his latest reversal decision that Van Houten continues to pose a threat to public safety. Van Houten said in a statement that she was disappointed and planned to pursue legal avenues. She is scheduled to return for another parole hearing in May of next year. Coming up, actor Bruce Willis is going to retire due to a medical condition. It's called aphasia, and it disrupts a person's ability to produce or understand language. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. Actor Bruce Willis, who starred in the Die Hard series, will retire from acting after being diagnosed with aphasia. His family members said in a statement yesterday that the disease is impacting his cognitive abilities. Here are the details. Bruce Willis's daughter posted on Instagram on Wednesday. She said Bruce has been experiencing some health issues and was recently diagnosed with aphasia. She said he will be retiring from his acting career as a result. Aphasia is a little-known condition that has many possible causes. Aphasia is a, a disorder of language. So it's a disruption to the language system. Um, so it, if it can affect people's ability to produce language um, or their ability and or their ability to understand language. Cognitive scientist Brenda Rapp at Johns Hopkins University says the most common cause of aphasia is a stroke. But there are also other causes. Any Thing that can uh, damage the brain, depending on where the damage is, can result in aphasia, can affect the language system. So it could be um, a head trauma, uh, um, it could be a neurodegenerative disease, it could be brain surgery, depending on where it takes place in the brain. Dr. Mario Mendez at UCLA explains what it's like for aphasia patients. I asked him to open his mouth, he couldn't do that to point. Uh, to understand simple sentences, he just didn't get what I was saying. Whereas the other type of uh, aphasia 
Um, they do understand for the most part, but they can't answer you. They struggle, can't talk, difficulty, now, that kind of thing. But there are still ways to treat the disorder. Some medications are tried, but by and large, uh, uh, good speech therapy uh, is uh, the way to go. Uh, and uh, it's tailored to the type of aphasia. Willis is currently 67 years old and has appeared in about 100 films across his four-decade career. He's won a Golden Globe Award and two Emmys. The actor has been especially active in recent years and appeared in eight movies released in 2021 alone. The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences says it has initiated disciplinary proceedings against Will Smith. The organization's Board of Governors is reviewing Smith's violations of its standards of conduct. The proceedings stem from an incident Sunday night when Smith hit Oscar host Chris Rock in the face after the comedian made a joke about the actor's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. According to the Academy, Smith was asked to leave after that, but he refused. He went on to accept an Oscar award for Best Actor. Rock's co-host, Wanda Sykes, has publicly stated Smith should have been escorted from the ceremony. Others have expressed the same sentiment, and the Academy said in a statement it could have handled the situation differently. Smith could face suspension or expulsion from the Academy. In the statement, the Academy apologized to Rock and thanked him for his resilience in that moment. Rock addressed the incident for the first time Wednesday night at his first stand-up performance since it happened. He told the crowd in Boston he's still processing it and will talk about it at some point in the future. You may have seen courtroom illustrations on TV and in newspapers for high-profile trials such as those of Jesse Smollett and Ghislaine Maxwell. Cameras are still banned from federal courts here in the U.S., but many state courts do allow cameras in some capacity. The courtroom sketch artist was once a vital resource for almost every news outlet, but now they're becoming harder and harder to find. NTD speaks to one of the last remaining courtroom illustrators in Chicago. Cheryl Cook has been sketching courtroom dramas for four decades. Courtroom illustration is not an easy job, so there were few artists to begin with. Now, Cook is one of only two remaining courtroom artists in Chicago. She recounted how she fell into the job. The Chicago Tribune looking for somebody they could draw from life. Evidently, that's a skill set. I had no idea. <laughs> they, uh, they said it's difficult to find people who can just draw somebody that's moving around in the room. They're not sitting for you. They're not posing. With a degree in design and illustration, Cook got an interview to draw someone wandering around. She did it, and they liked it, and the rest is history. In the beginning, Cook had no clue what the newspaper wanted, but she learned and eventually mastered the craft. If somebody's doing an opening statement, they want it covered. If somebody that is a very high-profile person that's well-known, they want that. Or if the story is about what the judge's verdict is going to be, they want the judge. It comes down to really just pretty simple, you know, just understanding the court process and knowing what is happening and what's critical. Courtroom illustration requires speed and accuracy, but Cook loves the challenge. You've got to be fast and kind of have a good memory for what you saw. You almost do an imprint on your memory 
of what you're looking at so that you can fill in some of those little holes um, in the few minutes you get after this is all over and everybody's filing out of the room. You've got to be able to put it down and still get it before a camera. There are days when you just, you're on and everything you put down is so accurate and so well done that you have to go out of there feeling good about yourself. Not only does Cook feel gratified by her work, but she also enjoys seeing the legal system at work. It's fascinating to watch the legal process, to see that it does work. In the digital age, people may question what an artist can do that a camera cannot. I can actually discern what's happening. I can take a temperature that a camera can't. I can see that there's like somebody weeping in the second aisle. Maybe there's the camera's not going to indiscriminately just turn around and go to whatever's happening in the room. And critics have long argued that cameras can also create distractions in the courtroom and interfere with the judicial process. Despite an artist's advantages, Cook thinks the profession is dying. She says it's just a matter of time before the court revamps its camera system. Cook is the last female courtroom artist in Chicago, where there's only one other male artist. Just ahead, a Chinese court has deferred its verdict on Australian journalist Chung Lei following a closed-door trial in Beijing. Find out more after this short break. U.S. forces are conducting live fire drills with Philippine forces involving nearly 9,000 troops. The maneuvers are in preparation for battle and include aircraft assaults and urban warfare. This is one way of ensuring that uh, we can uh, uh, operate uh, jointly with uh, our allies. And as I uh, mentioned in the opening uh, ceremony uh, three days ago, I mentioned that... Uh, uh, security is always a shared responsibility, and it's important that uh, um, our uh, capabilities are synchronized with uh, those of our allies. Building trust, not only in your own capability and in your weapon systems and in the effects of your weapons, but being building trust in the people that are around you. And to do that with partners over here in the Philippines, I mean, that is absolutely invaluable. We're doing this uh, to improve our uh, interoperability. And it's also an opportunity for us as we are procuring new equipment. We're able to uh, test our uh, new uh, weapons, our new armaments. The mock combat was watched by invited journalists, and it ended with the Allied forces successfully securing the island. Across the sea border from the venue lay China and Taiwan, and fears are brewing that Beijing could attempt military action on the island. The beach landing and coastal defense maneuvers were part of one of the largest combat exercises in years between the longtime treaty allies. The drills took place in the northern and western Philippines, which face the disputed South China Sea. U.S. Trade Representative says one of the highest priorities of the Biden administration's trade agenda is resetting the U.S.-China trade relationship and putting American farmers and exporters on a level playing field. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai criticized the prominent role of state-owned enterprises in China's exports and imports. She also pointed to labor rights suppression, a weak environmental regime, and other distortions that put market-oriented participants out of business. Tai noted Beijing's failure to meet purchase commitments under the Phase One trade agreement signed in January 2020. 
Tsai and her team spoke with the Chinese regime about the importance of meeting those commitments. But she says Beijing does not consider the agreement to be binding. She says the regime met only those commitments that it felt served its own interests. Tsai called it a familiar pattern when dealing with Beijing. She says a new approach is needed. She's urging Congress to pass the America Competes Act to reduce reliance on China. The trial of Australian journalist Chung Lei has just ended in Beijing in near secrecy. The Australian ambassador to China said even he was denied entry to the court proceedings. A Beijing court has concluded the trial of Chung Lei, a Chinese-born Australian journalist, with a deferred verdict. Prior to the trial, court officials barred Australian Ambassador Graham Fletcher from observing the proceedings. Well, um, as you've seen, we've just been denied entry into the trial. Um, this is deeply uh, concerning, unsatisfactory and regrettable. Um, we can have no confidence in the validity of a process uh, which is conducted in secret. Fletcher said they will continue to advocate for Chung's rights and interests. According to Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wanbin, Chung allegedly provided state secrets overseas, and he urged Australia to, quote, respect China's judicial sovereignty. But the regime didn't offer any details about the offenses Chung is accused of committing. We have no information about the charges or allegations against Ms. Chung. And no, we just don't have any information on that. And that, that, is, that is part of the reason why we're so concerned, because we have no uh, basis on which to, um, to understand why she's being detained. Chung Lei worked as a TV anchor for Chinese state media for 10 years. In August 2020, she was detained amid tense relations between Canberra and Beijing. Australia has voiced concerns about a lack of transparency over the case. Chung's family is also convinced of her innocence. Chung is the second Chinese-Australian held by Chinese authorities since 2019. Australia has warned its citizens of the risk of traveling to mainland China, noting that the Chinese regime has detained foreigners on vague charges of endangering national security. Two UK judges have resigned from Hong Kong's appeals court. They say they can no longer sit on the court while the city's freedoms erode. The British Foreign Secretary says the two judges' continued presence in Hong Kong's top court would risk legitimizing oppression. She says that since China's national security law was imposed on Hong Kong, there has been a crackdown on free speech, free press, and free association. Both judges are also members of the UK's Supreme Court. Under Hong Kong law, senior judges from other countries can sit on Hong Kong's court of final appeal as non-permanent members. Eight of the 12 overseas judges currently there are British. The other British judges there do not sit on the UK's Supreme Court. It is unclear if they will also resign. The Justice Department unsealed charges against a Chinese national accused of spying for the Chinese regime. The man is alleged to have spied on at least 35 people in the U.S. His activities were part of Operation Fox Hunt. That's a Chinese Communist Party initiative to forcibly bring Chinese dissidents back to China or to force them into paying financial settlements to the regime. The U.S. Assistant Attorney General says the defendant also enlisted others in the U.S. to help with his spying operations. He relied on private investigation firms and a New York law enforcement officer to help his activities. At least one of his victims was a pregnant woman. 
She was forcibly detained for eight months while visiting China. Many of the victims are U.S. citizens of Chinese heritage who have been in the United States for years. The accused spy is currently at large in mainland China. Up next, the British Labour leader calls for the Prime Minister to resign following the Met Police's conclusion that lockdown-busting parties in Downing Street and Whitehall broke the law. Thousands of small earthquakes threaten Portugal's volcanic island of Sao Jorge in recent days and are leaving dairy farmers on their, and their cows on edge. More on that in just a minute here on NTD News. In his first public comments since the Metropolitan Police concluded that laws were broken during parties in Downing Street and Whitehall, the UK's Prime Minister said people of the country expect the government to be focused on current challenges facing the UK rather than a police investigation. NTD's Joy Duguid has more. During the Prime Minister questions, Boris Johnson first expressed his thanks to Donna Ockenden and her team for the Maternity Services Inquiry Report. Every woman giving birth has the right to a safe birth and my heart therefore goes out to the families for the distress and uh, suffering that they've endured. Attention then turned to Partygate as Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer suggested the Prime Minister should resign for misleading the House by denying allegations of wrongdoing at the parties during England's lockdowns. He told the House no rules were broken in Downing Street during lockdown. The police have now concluded there was widespread criminality. The ministerial code says that ministers who knowingly mislead the House should resign. Why is he still here? But the Prime Minister swept the question away, saying the government would focus on its job now of tackling the cost of living crisis. An initial round of 20 fixed penalty notices were issued as part of Scotland Yard's investigation into a series of gatherings in 2020 and 2021. Joy Duguid, NTD News. Covered in lush green pastures, Portugal's mid-Atlantic archipelago is a cow's paradise. But thousands of small earthquakes have been rattling the volcanic island of Sao Jorge in recent days and are leaving dairy farmers on edge. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. Grazing cows can be spotted in every corner of Sao Jorge. Here, milk production represents 70 to 80 percent of the island's economy. But 14,000 earthquakes have hit the island since March 19th. In Sao Jorge's more than 200 dairy farmers are scared of the impact on their cattle and pastures. There is talk of eruptions. If there is an eruption, of course, it will have a very big impact due to the ashes. If it's just the seismic crisis, if there are no landslides, I think we have to go on with normal life and try to overcome it and start living with it because we spend our lives waiting for it. The largest of the tremors was clocked at magnitude 3.3, and there are fears of a volcanic eruption for the first time since 1808 or a powerful earthquake. The Seismovolcanic Surveillance Center raised the island's volcanic alert last week to level 4 on a scale of 1 to 5, meaning there is a real possibility the volcano could erupt. 
I'm a little scared. We never know what can happen, but I'm not going to turn my back on what I have here and walk off the island. I'll just watch the news, but I won't give up. Nearby the cheese production unit, factory president Antonio Aguiar said farmers would be the last to leave the island if a natural disaster unfolds. The farmers' main concern has to do more with their animals. Everyone knows that if things get worse, the last ones to leave are the producers, the animal owners. They continue to work because this is where they make their income. 1,500 of the islands around 8,400 inhabitants have already left, and staff shortages are taking their toll on Sao Jorge's three cheese factories. If the situation worsens, there are fears factories might not have enough staff to process milk. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Former players Kaka and Iker Casillas were on hand for the launch of the 2022 FIFA World Cup match ball near Doha. FIFA claims that the 14th successive ball created by Adidas for the FIFA World Cup travels faster in flight than any other in the tournament's history. They say its design will support high speed and high quality games. Al-Rilla means the journey in Arabic. The ball was designed with sustainability as a priority and is made exclusively with water-based inks and glues. Wednesday's launch marked the start of Al-Rilla's journey to 10 cities across the world, including stops in Dubai, Tokyo, Mexico City, and New York. Formula One will light up Las Vegas on a Saturday night in November 2023 as the streets of the city are taken over by the fastest cars and most famous drivers in the world. Look at this iconic backdrop. Uh, there is uh, nowhere better for Vaughan to be here. It's impressive. And uh, in November 2023, the best racing on the planet will be on the street of Las Vegas under these lights. It'll be amazing. For us, this is a perfect partnership. We know the economic impact that Formula One is going to have on this community is enormous. We are anticipating 170,000 visitors to town to watch this race. They will accommodate 400,000 room nights, which is absolutely amazing. The Las Vegas Grand Prix track will see drivers roar past landmarks such as the Bellagio Fountains and Caesars Palace. The sport previously struggled to make inroads in the country, but its popularity has been surging in the United States. This year, the U.S. will host the Miami Grand Prix in May and the United States Grand Prix in Austin in October. The popular Netflix docuseries Drive to Survive has also turbocharged interest. Next year's race marks the return of Formula One to Las Vegas, which was the site of the Caesars Palace Grand Prix in the early 1980s. One of California's world-renowned attractions is preparing to reopen to the public after a two-year closure. The luxurious and extravagant site is none other than Hearst Castle. World-famous, lavish, enchanting Hearst Castle will reopen to the public on May 11th. Officially known as Hearst San Simeon State Historical Monument, the house has been closed for two years due to pandemic lockdowns and repairs. California's Department of Parks and Recreation announced last week that the Enchanted Hill will be welcoming guests in less than two months' time. The castle closed to the public just over two years ago on March 16, 2020. K-12 
California State Parks Director Armando Quintero said he is thrilled to reopen the state treasure. He said, We are confident that these once-in-a-lifetime repairs and improvements to the road facility will serve countless generations to come. The mansion is filled with ornate decorations, along with both ancient and classic artwork. Hearst Castle is located in San Luis Obispo County. Its construction was done through a partnership between William Randolph Hearst and architect Julia Morgan. Hearst made his fortune through inheritance and yellow journalism, reporting that promoted sensationalism over facts. Morgan was the first female architect licensed in California. State Parks will offer a Julia Morgan tour in honor of the 100th anniversary of the castle's construction, albeit delayed by two years. While Earth's volcanoes are spewing lava, scientists say Pluto had much cooler volcanic eruptions. A new study reveals the dwarf planet has giant ice volcanoes that were active as recently as 100 to 200 million years ago. The discovery was made during NASA's New Horizons mission. Researchers point to a region of Pluto largely made of bumpy ice and filled with volcanic domes. One volcano is similar in volume to one of Earth's biggest volcanoes in Hawaii. Still, researchers say the volcanoes on the frigid planet look nothing like what they have already seen in other parts of the solar system. They believe when Pluto's volcanoes erupted, a cold mixture of ice and water flowed out like toothpaste onto the planet's surface. NASA released a new image from the Hubble Space Telescope, one of the most distant single star it's ever observed. Nicknamed Irindel, it's glimmering 28 billion light years away. The star could be between 50 to 500 times more massive than our sun and millions of times brighter. Scientists say it's the oldest detection of a star yet. They estimate that it was created 900 million years after the Big Bang. The observation could help astronomers investigate the early years of the universe. A study detailing the findings was published in the journal Nature. Ancient Pompeii has a new guardian, Spot, a four-legged robot dog that will inspect the ancient Italian city streets and tunnels to identify structural issues. The robot, designed by U.S. firm Boston Dynamics, will patrol Pompeii at nighttime to inspect the smallest of spaces and gather data for planning interventions to fix safety and structural issues. Equipped with a 360-degree camera, it will also protect the ancient city streets from illegal relic hunters who cause structural issues to the ruins by digging tunnels. Pompeii will also have its own eye in the sky, a flying laser scanner capable of autonomously conducting 3D scans of the ruins, helping spot carry out its tasks. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.